You're listening to a Sin podcast. You can listen to this show live by tuning your radio to 90.7 or online at sin.org.au. We at Represent would like to acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional owners of the land on which Sin operates, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sin Media respectfully acknowledges their ancestors and elders, past, present and emerging. We would also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians and their ancestors of the lands and waters across Australia where our content reaches. Sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Kids should go to school. That's what we're committed to. Why do we want to Represent. You're listening to Represent. You are listening to Represent. Woo! For the first time in a lot of weeks, the whole team is back in the studio. We've actually got yes. all three of us, finally. And we have a stack show. We've got two interviews. God damn. So let's get straight into it. Dive in. Naya, introduce our honoured guest. <laughs> well... This is Ed, and oh my goodness, I do not know how to pronounce your surname. Can you please? Ed Crutch. Thank you very much. This is this is wonderful Ed, the campaign manager for Make It 16. Um, he is the an organiser and advocate for young people in Australia and um, is tr- working to try and lower the voting age to 16. Um, through uh, Make It 16. You founded the uh, National Youth Political Engagement Organisation Run For It, which supports young people to engage with the electoral systems in Australia. Um, and can you tell us just a little bit about Make It 16 and yourself and what, what you've done? Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so I'm the National Director of Run For It, and Run For It's an organisation that I set up a few years ago with a few other young people that were all just um, a bit sick of the state of politics and sick of um, the lack of representation of young people. Um, and the main work that we do is supporting young people that want to run for elected office. So um, we've supported young people that want to run for council in Victoria, in New South Wales, in Queensland, South Australia and Tasmania. And um, unfortunately, there are no local council elections this year for us to be working on. So we thought it was about time we took on um, a big campaign to make politics more accessible for young people. And we thought the biggest one to start with was 16 and 17 year olds and their right to vote. Um, so I'm lucky this year to be the campaign manager for Make It 16, um, which is a really awesome campaign which is led by a group of 16 and 17 year olds who all want to be able to vote. Great. So we've seen, I feel like we've seen this a few times in the past, especially in recent years. I feel like there's been a little bit of a call each year, you know, let's lower the voting age, let's get those 16-year-olds engaged in politics. But what makes this one different? Yeah, for sure. It's kind of like every couple of years, maybe every 
um, every term of government there's a push within it at some point to lower the voting age. I think that's usually every government that the Greens have been in um, has essentially they've introduced a bill or something like that pushing to lower the voting age and it hasn't built that much momentum. They've been kind of like the sole party that support it and continue to support it um, but unfortunately it's just never quite garnered that major party support and it's also never quite had the youth movement angle so um, there's never been a concerted effort of young people pushing for the change and that's because 16 and 17 year olds just have so much going on in their life they um, have struggled to build campaigns to be able to vote but it is so critical because they have all these things on going on in their life that they're able to vote well there's obviously like a lot of sides to the debate of whether 16 and 17 year olds should be allowed to vote so why should they yeah there's definitely a whole bunch of reasons um personally i think one of the most important ones is what it'll do to our democracy um Lowering the voting age is going to improve enrolment and turnout. You're, when you're 16 and 17, you're more likely to be living at home. You're going to be going to school. Um, you're in this stable envir environment when you're first learning how to vote and how to engage with our democracy. And you essentially, and um, the overseas case studies have shown that you develop some really strong habits around your electoral participation if you um, vote for the first time when you're that little bit younger. Um, there's a couple of other reasons when you think about civics education as well. We don't have the best civics education um, in Australia, unfortunately, at the moment. But um, I think if we lower the voting age to 16, our um, schools and our education systems will um, hopefully be encouraged to develop better civics education. Definitely. So I feel like we've seen... There's been, obviously, the pushes from the Greens semi-regularly, but we haven't seen much interest from Labor and the Liberals, the major parties, in lowering the voting, voting age. And, of course, they also didn't attend your launch um, and at Parliament House earlier this year. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, a couple of Labor MPs did actually come along to our launch, but oh, they sorry, weren't... Sorry, I've no, That's all good. They weren't very... Um, they weren't very inclined to make it publicly known. There was right. there was one who came along, and it's, I think a little bit because um, they're all a little bit scared to um, <laughs> show <laughs> support for Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Like they don't want to be like they're they're really interested because they're like, whoa, these are young people doing really cool things, and um, we're so glad to see sixteen and seventeen year olds that care about all these issues and are also impacted by all these issues actually launching this campaign. And funny fact as well, a lot of a lot of the current Labor MPs, um, when they were a lot younger, supported lowering it. And a lot of them have been involved with different movements. And um, I haven't done that much internet stalking, but once <laughs> once you start to, like a lot of them have said they supported in the past, but that kind of washes away once they're into government. Um, I think that essentially at the moment, a, a lot of the challenge is that they see the issue really deeply politically. So they see it as a Greens issue that... Um, isn't actually going to be that beneficial for the Labor Party electorally or um, they don't want to give give the Greens a win. I think that um, with our campaign, what we're trying to do is just like get really far away from that narrative and just talk about the um, capacity and the desire of so many young people to vote, the issues that impact them, the things they're already experiencing and doing, like paying tax and why it's so critical that they um, have a say in our democracy. Definitely. So 
I mean, it's interesting to know that I didn't really know that they kind of had been for it and then had sort of turned away, moved away yeah. gradually. Mm. Do you think that's like them getting jaded or like is it just sort of, I guess it's not that much of a kind of voting issue when they can't vote at the moment, so there's not really political points to be won. Yeah. You know, is it, that part of it? I think so. People care less as they get older. That's one of the reasons why... Like, just the issues that you care about do generally change. And it's one of the biggest, in my opinion, problems with our politics. Like, there's a lack of representation of people under 35. And that means that our parliament, like, talks about issues of people over 35 really significantly. Like, housing is a really great example. There's lots of discussions about, like, first, first home ownership and, like, um, housing investment and things like that. Um, there's not much talk about renting, protections for people living in share housing, or that kind of thing, because there's just not that much representation of that age group in politics. Mm. But on the Labour Party in particular, they, um, like, a lot of them have been very radical when they were younger and been involved in all kinds of youth movements, but I think that, um, yeah, now once they're elected, that um, the amount of time that passes means that... Um, they're just not quite as keen on some of the issues they cared about when they were that little bit younger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess when we talk about sort of the lack of representation of young people in politics, would you say that that's making them less engaged in it? Yeah, like, I think that if we look at the people that have been raising the issue in the parliament, they're the younger MPs. So the youngest MP in the former parliament, Jordan Steele-John, was the one who introduced the bill. The youngest MP in this parliament, Stephen Bates MP, has been the person to introduce it as well. And just to, to name names, I'm not sure how much you'd like it, but the Labour MP that did come along and showed support was Josh Burns, one of the youngest Labour MPs um, as well. Interesting. Yeah, no, interesting. Okay. <laughs> exposing mm. exposing the names. <laughs> we, lo we love a good scoop yeah, on the show. Yeah. But um, so when it does come to participation from young people in politics, I think there is sort of large groups of kids who genuinely just don't really care about politics. I'm a bit ashamed to say I was definitely one of them when I was, like, 16. So what do we do about those kids and how do we get them involved? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, like, quite often we hear that as a reason why 16 and 17-year-olds shouldn't be able to vote. And, um, like, the response that I like to um, bring up is the amount of people over 18 that obviously... Um, don't care about politics and um, donkey vote or draw something slightly obscene on their ballot paper <laughs> or something like that. Um, but I think there are so many 16 and 17 year olds whose lack of participation in politics is caused by their lack of in enfranchisement. I think because they can't vote and because they don't have as much power in their constituencies, they're less likely to engage. And it's actually, it, it's true not just in the voting format. Like, um, young people are less likely to go and meet with their local MPs and talk about the issues that they care about because they're less likely to be valued because they're not voting constituents. The um, MPs are always going to pick a meeting with someone who um, essentially gets to re-elect them or not re-elect them over someone who can't. Definitely. Um, what's it been like in being a part of this campaign? Obviously with the young people on one side and then these kind of very high profile MPs like Monique Ryan, I know was at the launch and played kind of a big part there. You know, there's kind of 
two sides of this world that you're in. What's that like kind of dealing with both sides? Yeah, it's it's really fun, actually. What I really like about it, like, um, in my background, I've been involved in a few different campaigns where we've been groups of young people who have lobbied for um, change on a whole bunch of different issues. Like, um, I worked at the Australian Youth Climate Coalition and um, have done lots of fun, fun campaigns with them. Um, but essentially... All, in all of those situations, we've been a group of like young people unsupported by MPs going into um, offices where they don't necessarily want to be meeting with us. They're a little bit hostile to whatever we have to say. Um, with, with this issue, we've been able to build something really beautiful where we can have groups of 16 and 17-year-olds essentially find these MPs such as Monique Ryan and Stephen Bates and Andrew Wilkie and a whole bunch of the crossbench who are generally really supportive of the campaign and they've been able to say, we support this campaign but the, um, the best voices and the strongest arguments are coming from the 16 and 17 year olds so um, when we launched to Parliament House we were in a committee room and um, we were able to have um, the 16 and 17 year olds essentially sit where members of Parliament would usually sit and speak to an audience and then the parliamentarians sat in that audience and got to hear from the young people about why it matters to them and then when we had a media conference essentially the young people led that with um, a group of supportive MPs standing behind them which is the opposite to what's usually done with an MP with some um, supportive faces behind. Yeah, it's really definitely. cool. It's such an amazing opportunity and I guess like when a young person is sort of getting into that sort of um, political participation, how would you recommend that young people get into politics? Yeah, I think there are, there are so many ways and I think the most common response, like I've heard that question asked to lots of MPs and they're like, go join a political party or like join your local branch and I, I think that's so boring. Like, I, <laughs> like you definitely can do that and that's, that's really great but I think like issues advocacy is like what our politics is all about I think like um, you should find the issues that you actually care about and you should go and try and seek change on those and I think often the best way to seek that change is is through the established um, means and through our politics and political systems and I think um, you should get together with the people that care about the same things as you and potentially that means that you should all join a political party and you should all try and um, get yourselves elected. Um, one of the really nice things about local council is that it's not super dominated by political parties um, so I would really encourage young people who really care about their community, who really care about issues, to look into running for local council and um, essentially you can do it for about $10,000 which is still a bit of money to raise but um, you're talking millions if you're wanting to run in a federal seat. Um, <laughs> a big difference. Can I yeah. defer that to my hex debt? Or how does, how does that give work? It a go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Student startup loan, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so, what's coming up for you? What's next for Make It Sixteen? Yeah. So, essentially, I'm I'm a little bit older than sixteen. I'm twenty three. Um, we have done a. Um, I think we've done a pretty good job of setting up the campaign for the 16 and 17 year olds, building all the infrastructure. They've got a really awesome website, a video, a petition. We have this great launch, but slowly we really want it to be um, not only a youth-led campaign, but 
a youth-led campaign that's led by the youth that are most impacted, and um, that means they're 16 and 17. Um, so I guess we just need to keep building that movement as sustainable and ongoing as it possibly can be. We want to put all the decision-making power into the young people, which is a bit of a challenge, like as Run For It as an organisation, we're mainly tertiary age students um, volunteering our time just to engage our peers in politics and um, we've been able to do things like find the money that has got the campaign started um, and we just need to be transferring all those skills over to the 16 and 17 year olds to run their campaign and I'm really hoping that um, over the next couple of weeks and months we can build lots of groups in local areas and um, those groups can just build the movement and just keep meeting with their MPs and um, begging for the change until 16 and 17 year olds can vote. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I guess with those local groups, how can someone interested in this campaign get involved? Yeah, so we have a website, makeit16.au, that's got a whole bunch of ways you can take action. So um, you can donate if that interests you. You can also sign up to volunteer. You can come along to our events. You can also sign the petition. Um, and if you represent a particular organisation, you can partner with us too um, because coalitions of organisations are how you get things done. Definitely. Yeah, well, we'd recommend all of our listeners getting into that because, of yeah. course, we're a youth politics show <laughs> and 16, 17-year-old voices, they deserve to be heard, I reckon. Completely. Um, yeah. Any final thoughts? <laughs> I think we're all chilling. Now you're feeling better. <laughs> I'm all right. Sorry about disappearing. <laughs> she had a, a bit of a health crisis. Yes, yes. <laughs> all right. Swallowed a fly or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Ed. It's been thank really you. great to chat. Um yeah, we hope to get you back on in the future so you can keep giving us updates. Yeah, we'll definitely keep an eye on the organisation as well. We did look at the launch when it did launch. Yeah, a, that was a, very a, exciting. Back. Yeah. yeah, so awesome. hopefully we'll get to chat to you soon. Yeah, and we're sure. looking forward to seeing what happens. Thanks All so right. much. Well, you're listening to Sin. This is You're No Good by Ella Gilbert. Jeez, Stay with us because we will be back. <laughs> 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Sin, we're always on. Promise me Even though you're bad at these Do you think before you
welcome back to Represent. Woo. We are super excited. We're just keeping on going because we've got another interview that we are super excited about. Stuck I just said that twice. That's kind of bad. <laughs> um, so we've got Georgie Crozier. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to come and chat to us today. Great to be with you, Bridie. Um, so you've served as an MP for the Southern Metropolitan Region since 2010 in various positions. You've been the Shadow Minister for Health and, and Ambulance Services, and you're now the Leader of the Opposition in the Upper House, as well as those two ministries. Mm -hmm. So fair bit on your plate at the moment, I can imagine. Yeah, there is, but there's always, you know, in politics, it's there's never a moment where you're not busy. So there's just so much to do. But particularly in health. I mean, health yeah. has been a really big issue, as we all know, over the last few years. And it's still really busy. Definitely, I can imagine. Well, shall we get straight into it? Let's get straight into it, I reckon. Well, I think it's good that you've sort of mentioned the last couple of years because, of course, COVID was a thing that did, unfortunately, happen, uh, in case you missed it. Yeah. Um, Who missed it? Yeah. yeah. Hopefully nobody did. But um, I feel like now that we've sort of moved past it a bit more, we're starting to think of long COVID and its effects there. And I certainly feel like I've got a bit of long COVID. Oh, really? But, um, yeah, I'm forgetting things, like, all the time now. It's crazy. But anyway, that's completely off topic. <laughs> what? Um, so with long COVID coming up... What should we be doing to, sorry, to alleviate the pressure that this is going to bring to our health system? Do you mean people that have long COVID as a as a um, condition, a health condition? People that have long COVID as a health condition and, and sort of all the things. And as that burden grows. Yeah. yeah. And it's a very good question because I think there's so much research and data being done on this. I know people that um, their kids have had long COVID. I know people that have said their doctors have said they've had long COVID. So it actually is, you know, there is symptoms that are associated with that long COVID and they're really debilitating. So you want to get as much care and support as you can get, but you also want to get that data so that we know what we're working with. Because if long COVID is going to be around every time we have, you know, a, a new outbreak of COVID, we want to be able to work at it or the medical fraternity and the medical system will want to be able to manage it. So I think there's great research being done, really good um, uh, progress in some areas, but a lot more to do. Definitely. So, I mean, you are a nurse. Um, you've done heaps of training and like worked in the area. We're seeing a bit of a staffing, sorry, staffing crisis in the health sector at the moment. Um, what should we be doing to fix this? Another great question. I I was I was a nurse and I was a midwife, so I spent around 14, 15 years in the public health system and then a couple of years in the private system. So I've worked across all areas in our major hospitals, the Alfred, Royal Women's, in small country hospitals because I grew up in the country. And it's a massive issue, that workforce. Workforce, as we know, is a big issue in many, many areas, but in health where we need to really rebuild the health system, it's critical and uh, we need to do a lot. So I would love to be encouraging as many young people to go into nursing, medicine, the allied health professionals. I mean, there's just so many fields that are fantastic in, in health. I loved my time in health. Um, but not only that, it's really when people do enter the health system, working for the health system, that we support them. And so it, there is that support. Government can provide that support so that you're not churning through the system. We want you to be there. We want you to advance your skills and do the scope of practice to the best of your capacity and where you're interested. So there's lots of things people can, governments can do and people can do. 
but supporting them and understanding the areas they want to work in, channel them in those areas, support them, look at the shortfalls across the state. Where are we short? What do we need to do in the regions? How do we do that? Is that housing? How do we look at uh, supporting students as they're coming through? Now, when I was a student nurse, we had accommodation. We lived in-house in the hospitals. So they were nursing homes, and I'm showing my age here. But it was a great way. It's a bit like uni bit like being at university. You know, you were amongst all your colleagues, and it was a great camaraderie. Um, I'm not saying we go back to those days, but what I'm saying is there was accommodation and we were all supported, and I think we need to be looking at some ways to support health workers with that accommodation. That's a really big issue. Yeah, definitely. Um, changing... I guess, tack a little bit. You've had a very steady climb in your ranks since 2010. You know, you've been through a fair few ministries in your time. What's it been like to kind of gain that experience? Amazing. I still pinch myself that I'm a Member of Parliament. I represent the Southern Metropolitan Region of Melbourne, which is close to, you know, 500 and, over 550,000 people, so almost as many people as the state of Tasmania. So it's a, it's a lot you of... put it like that. Yeah. Jesus, <laughs> whoa. Okay. That's it. So if I don't door knock you, you know why. Um, <laughs> but it's a really diverse area, and, and it, it's just a, 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 an amazing experience to be a Member of Parliament, and we get to do so much, whether it's, you know, talking to you guys about my experience and why I want to be... Um, working in the government, you know, as the government, putting fresh ideas, new ideas and improving Victorians' lives and their health outcomes. You know, that's why I'm the Shadow Minister for Health, challenging the government but also putting new ideas forward. So it's about, it's the issues when we are helping people. You know, what I had to do through COVID as Shadow Health Minister was some of those stories will live with me forever and they were truly heartbreaking and distressing. Um, and it's just helping people. It's very much, I see being in politics a bit like a nurse. You are there to help people, and it's very much a personal uh, vocation. So I love it, and I love helping people. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, you've been the second longest-serving Southern Metropolitan Region member. What have been some of the highlights of your career there? Oh, I didn't realise I'd been that you've done your homework. Well, some of the highlights I've, I think is just representing that area, which is really broad, but so many aspects to it. And uh, when I came in in 2010, I was given the really great and a fabulous opportunity to chair a committee that looked into child abuse. And so that affected many schools and many... Um, people in not only in my region but right across the state so I think that's one of the things that I'm very proud of the work that we did that led to yeah, part of that work led to the Royal Commission that ran nationally and our work that the Parliament did that I chaired that committee went around the world so that was an extraordinary piece of work um, but it is advocating for people I think advocating for people within my region. I um, I still continue to fight for an upgrade of the Alfred Hospital. It's it's a hospital I know, that's where I trained and it's falling down and we need to fix it and that's why I keep advocating on behalf of everyone that works at the Alfred and every patient that goes to the Alfred about upgrades. Yeah, I can imagine that your experiences must completely like inform the way you campaign for things like that. So something a little bit different, we've heard um, a lot about safe injecting rooms lately. 
Um, you know, I lived near the one in Richmond. I've got had a lot of personal experience with it. Um, we've heard that the Liberal Party is vehemently opposed to um, the new safe injecting room location in the city that was rumoured to be in the Salvos in Burke Street. We've seen in polls, um, or sorry, surveys, that Melbourne is Australia's heroin capital. There's clearly a drugs crisis on the streets of the city. You know, there are people just sleeping and shooting up on in the streets. What should we be doing rather than what we shouldn't be doing? Yeah, great. Another good question. So, and you would know some of the impacts to that local amenity in the community and what's happened. And, and we, we believe that um, an injecting room shouldn't be next to a school. We've been very clear about that. It's the wrong place. And we've been very clear about supporting people with drug addiction. And as a nurse, I have seen a lot of that. I've seen a lot of heroin addicts come in who have overdosed and the care and support that they need. And we've been critical of the government about not providing enough support and rehabilitation. There's not enough rehab, rehab beds. My colleague Emma Keeley has been very, very consistent in this. And whilst we absolutely support people with addiction and what Emma brought to the electorate last year at the election was opioid replacement therapy to assist people um, on heroin, for instance, give them a treatment, give them support, give them something that will get them off such an addictive drug and destructive drug like heroin. So we want to support people with addiction. We're not against that. We, you know, we not understand that Emma comes out of health. I come out of health. We want to help people. We don't want people to suffer, and we think that. Um, an injecting room where it's placed has got to be the right place and so there are other options there. What we're asking government is, well, what are those options? You're flying the Urala building in Flinders Street, which is the gateway to the city, now Burke Street, uh, Salvos, which is where so many families come into the Princess Theatre where restaurants are there and that'll have a massive impact. We know that from what has happened in North Richmond. So there's a lot of the community speaking out about that, but they want people to be safe as well. So it's about the best place and where's that best place got to be. And I think it should be closer to a health facility where they can get the care that they need and are really supported. Get them the support services, get them the rehabilitation, the beds, the accommodation, and um, importantly, look at our look at our option where we were talking about opioid replacement therapy so you can get people off these destructive drugs. Yeah, it's interesting you say that it should be near a health service because, of course, the one in Richmond is connected to the um, North Richmond Community Health. Mm -hmm. I actually went to the school um, and I've learnt in the years since I've left that the teachers before it opened would have to go around before school with tongs and a plastic bag picking up syringes. Um, like. Yep. Absolutely, it should be with the health service. But the salvos are providing some degree of help and some level of, you know, support. They uh, do as a, a great job. They do a great job, and they're seeing a lot of uh, these people addicted. And to go to your point about what the um, teachers did, there is uh, a three to four times. There's like eighteen thousand syringes now a month collected around North Richmond, which the council now do now just. Don't quote me on those figures. I might have them slightly off. But it's like three or four times the amount prior to when the injecting room opened. So this issue is still there. It's just, you know, different. Oh, I know the issues are still there. Believe yeah. me, it has yeah. not solved the problem. Yeah. But it's not like it was at that school anymore. Like, 
there are not the absolutely people just sort of laying on the street. I cycled through the Lennox Street corner every morning on my way to school. Like, that's not something a kid should have to do. Um, and I think it's really important that kind of politics acknowledges or politicians acknowledge that, you know, it needed to be in North Richmond. It needed to be in that area. Well, we we would disagree, and I would disagree with you, Bridie, and that's the art of yeah, that's politics. So, we think that, and if you listen to the the data, what is there in terms of the antisocial behaviour, and there are still kids, unfortunately, seeing um, people who have overdosed in the street, and some of those have been fatalities, so they're still occurring. So that's not good for any kid who's going to to school, and there have just been stories about you know issues with syringes and needle stick injuries and things like that and that is not that's not good either so everybody wants to get this right and um but we we have been very consistent about yeah if you're having an injecting room but not next to a school because it is exposing and we know that the numbers of people that are going into the north richmond community have increased and that antisocial and crime behavior criminal behavior has increased so there are many many issues associated with it and that's why it's got to be considered in a very careful way and we don't believe the government's done that all right, well, we can move on from that one. <laughs> yeah, no, um, so I guess sort of taking it's it It's an from, important debate, though. It is. Important. Yeah, Sorry, absolutely. Pretty. No, all good. So sort of taking it from something that is um, happening around schools to something that's happening in schools. Vaping is, of course, something mm -hmm. that is an epidemic that's sweeping across sort of our age group and our target demographic. And younger, unfortunately. And younger, unfortunately, as well. Uh, so what's been your take on uh, the vaping situation and what should we be doing with that? Yep. It's a very big issue and it's something that I've been talking about for a long time and actually asking the government, you know, and I took a policy to the election last year about vaping. So we really wanted that illegal sale to minors, to kids, to be cracked down. It's really terribly important that kids do not get addicted to vaping and we know the stories from the US around the toxicity of what is in vapes and the numbers of kids that are actually taking it up are really concerning. So I've been speaking to the Cancer Council for months and months and months about this, um, Vic Health, and really putting in the parliament what the government should be doing and then taking a policy to the last year's election. So uh, the, the former federal colleague, Greg Hunt, was very concerned about this issue and looking at um, you know the border force issues that are required with the product coming in difficult for any federal government and I you know they've fed the current federal government is looking at that issue which I'm really pleased to say is happening um, and again I'll say that there needs to be more enforcement about the illegal sale of vaping uh, vapes to two kids I don't think enough's been done here in Victoria yeah, definitely. Absolutely. I think it's just... Do you think it's too late? Like, It's never too it, late. It's never too late. <laughs> ever the optimist? Well, I think if we don't, we've got to keep trying, you know, and we can't say we've lost that. We've lost that. We've got to... We've got to actually keep trying because it's so important. But education... And I've been talk, calling for campaigns to young people and to school kids and their parents. Understand the dangers of vaping and give support to teachers who are really dealing with this issue. I mean, it's very, very difficult for some schools and some um, teachers and principals. 
but it's really about an education campaign. Education is critical in this area, so we never must give up. Definitely. Yep, absolutely. Um, yeah, something I've been seeing personally a lot in the media lately is about wait times for um, psychologists, psychiatrists, mental health specialists. Why is there such a crisis and so much demand at the moment? And, you know, how can we fix that? It's a huge crisis. And Emma Keeley, my colleague who I mentioned before, has really spoken about this for years. And what we've seen through COVID has been an increase in demand because of a whole range of lockdowns were incredibly difficult for so many people. And we saw so many people lose their jobs, their business, they lost their businesses, uh, homeschooling, the pressures of lockdowns. I mean, let's not forget we had the longest lockdowns of anywhere in the world. And I've said many, many times, you know, we had the harshest of restrictions with the worst outcomes because we had more deaths anywhere than around the country. We had the longest lockdowns, which had a massive impact economically, but also, and importantly, as this issue you raised, Brady, about mental health. And we just do not have enough in the system to be able to deal with the demands. And we hear it all the time. And it's terribly concerning because there's not enough rehab beds. There's not enough investment the government has not put in over many years. And so we're seeing this demand that's come through after COVID really being very, the system's being very, very challenged. And uh, that's something that we will continue to pursue. It's really about what the government, how the government is managing uh, this issue. And we don't believe they've managed it to the best of uh, what the Victorian community needs. Fair enough. Absolutely. And so, I mean, your, imagine yourself as the health minister mm -hmm. during government. What would you do? In mental health? Or in mental health. In mental yeah. health. Uh, it's really looking, we need more investment in rehabilitation. We need more investment in that support. We need to understand, you know, what are the triggers? We know a lot of the triggers that cause mental health, but look at the causes and then wrap in the support immediately. You know, we, we're constantly looking at uh, investing before, you know, after the, after the effect. And there's so much to do in preventative health. So mental health is chronic disease just like diabetes and other chronic diseases you've got to put in lots of areas around prevention and mental health uh, and look, look at certain things for especially young people I think it's really really important so there's lots to do lots more to do and um, we'll be continuing but it's rehab and support and getting those those rehabilitation beds and getting those professionals in place so that they can treat yeah, absolutely. So do was, we've got a quick last question. We'll yep. let you go, but it's been a great chat. Thank you so much. Just real quick for our listeners as well, if you've if you've found anything we've talked ab talked about distressing, uh, Kids Helpline 1800 55 1800 or Lifeline 13 11 14. They're both available 24 hours a day if you need them. Uh, and finally, of course, our, our audience is very interested in politics and getting into politics. And as yourself, you've had a long, successful career in that. How would you recommend young people get their start in politics? Um, I love the fact that so many young people are interested in politics because politics matters. The decisions government make matter. And if ever there was that impact, it was COVID. Now, I'm a believer that, you know, I'm a believer of... Uh, smaller government, less government intruding into your lives is better and I don't want big government controlling me. But what we saw with COVID was the decisions government make on how politics matters 
and why government matters. And so I would say to any young person, please look at it and pursue it. Understand what we're talking about, why we're talking about it. The, the challenge of ideas is the way that we progress this country and progress this state and really put forward ideas and solutions that improve our lives and that's what it's about. So that's what I would say if you're ever interested, pursue it. Uh, come and knock on our door, come and get some experience in our offices where we have internships um, and get involved. There's, we have, you know, we've got it. We are a, a party of volunteers, so we're a grassroots, we're a grassroots party, the Liberal Party. We are, we, you know, we go to the grassroots. We don't have the big union power. We don't have that. We're grassroots, and so we see what happens and what matters on the ground. So I'd say to anyone, please knock on my door if you want to come and chat to me. I'd love it. That's oh, great. Amazing. <laughs> so um, thanks, everyone, for tuning in to Represent on Sin. Thanks, Georgie, for joining us. Thank it's you for having me. Chat. Um, please tweet us, threads us. I've made a threads account. Instagram um, us. Instagram us. Tell us what you thought. Listen back on Omni, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. We're there. And as always, remember to stay political. political. You're listening to Sin. You've been listening to a Sin Media Podcast, where young people run the show. 